HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association, real education for people who believe in real food. For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. In the world of food policy, and indeed on our show, conversations typically focus on what's best for our bodies or how to make sure everyone is fed. From school food to obesity policy to SNAP dollars, nutrition is often the dominant standard by which we measure whether or not our food is good. But food has impacts beyond just our bodies and our personal health, and policy has a role to play in changing the way our food system affects the environment and the climate. Joining us today to discuss the importance of addressing sustainability issues in our food system is Bob Martin, the director of the Food System Policy Program at Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Previously, Bob worked for the Pew Charitable Trusts, where he served as a senior officer at the Environment Group following the dissemination of his work as executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production. Throughout his experiences, he's acquired an extensive knowledge of agriculture, environmental, and health policy, and I'm thrilled to be speaking with him today. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate being on. Well, we are. We appreciate you being here. Um, <laughs> I want to. I want to jump right in here and discuss the results of a survey that you recently published, which found that seventy-four percent of adults believe the newly released dietary guidelines should include environmental provisions and support sustainable agriculture practices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the scope of the survey and what inspired you to commission it? Sure. Um, well, we it was a survey of 800 um, uh, people of voting age uh, in the United States, and <clears throat> the Center for a Livable Future had been uh, actively involved in uh, commenting on the dietary guidelines process as they were being developed. Um, every five years, the government reviews nutrition and and other science information to make 
dietary recommendations to the public. They're they're just recommendations, but they tend to set kind of a national tone for what people should be consuming. Um, so this year, uh, we were very strongly in favor of including uh, sustainability provisions as part of the dietary guidelines in that we think people should consider as they're making dietary choices kind of the source of their food and how it's raised um, because sustainability is an important part of being able to feed ourselves. Um, the guidelines came out and those um, the lower meat uh, recommendations which we also strongly supported as an environmental and health issue and the sustainability language were not included so we thought we would see what uh, the general public felt about it. So words like sustainable and responsibly produced are are used to usually kind of describe a vague way of food production that has more of a limited impact on the environment. Um, but I, I, in my opinion, I think these words are not really well understood and sometimes misused. So can you, um, for the purposes of the study, explain how you define uh, sustainable agricultural practices? Like what, what does certainly. that mean? <laughs> yeah, certainly. There's a uh, definition that's commonly accepted um, in ag, uh, federal ag policy. I think it was originally part of the 1996 Farm Bill. And it generally has components that are uh, produce healthy food, uh, do not destroy the environment, but actually enhance the environment, uh, don't deplete natural resources, um, so we defined it for the purposes of this poll as we ask questions, you know, uh, healthy, nutritious food that um, does not harm the environment in the production process. And so it was, it was kind of our derivative of uh, what is the commonly accepted language in ag policy at the federal level. So what does that mean, though, to, not, to doesn't harm the environment in, term, in the production uh, process? Is that not using pesticides or re- reduction in meat consumption? Was there, was there anything that you were kind of trying to get at specifically? Well, the, the center is focused primarily on uh, industrial uh, meat production or the industrial model of meat production. And when you separate the animals uh, out of the production cycle of, of crops and uh, put them in intensive settings like, you know, uh, 20,000 pigs in, in a swine barn or 100,000 chickens in a poultry barn, they're removed from the kind of replenishing cycle that that animals provide for crop nutrients and their waste then uh, becomes a disposal problem. Um, For example, if you look at the Delmarva Peninsula uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland, uh, where about 525 million chickens are raised annually, uh, when they're not part of the a crop rotation environment where they're they're integrated into this crop production system, so they're depositing their waste naturally. It it really builds up. They they produce 43 million cubic feet of waste uh, a year. Um, <laughs> I don't even I can't that, even imagine what that looks like, but I don't think I want to know. <laughs> well, it, to visualize it, it's enough to fill the U.S. Capitol dome every week. Okay. Wow. Well, that so, is a visual. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's well, and some people. I I didn't mean to have any political commentary there. No, but, no, no. <laughs> um, so, so in a more sustainable system, um, the animals are integrated into the uh, production cycle. Um, it's uh, not necessarily uh, free range, but there's a component of that in in broiler production or 
the hogs are not raised in an intensive barn confined where their waste becomes an environmental disposal problem. That's where it's kind of interesting. It's where it flips from their waste being a nutrient important to raising crops to being a disposal problem because of the volume. Right. And this is, you wrote about this or, um, you know, did a lot of this work when you were at Pew, correct? Um, when you produced the report, Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. Um, right. Yeah, I, I led that commission for three years. Um, it was funded by the Pew Charitable Trust and was housed at the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. And so in, in, in a lot of ways, it seems like this survey is sort of an extension of, or, or are you trying to get at an extension of kind of the work that you initially did um, with yeah. the report? Yeah, I think that what we wanted to see, so I, I came back to the Center for a Livable Future about five years ago, and we're trying to build uh, a stronger policy program. And one of the things that I think is very helpful when you're trying to understand policy is you need to understand what public think about the policy. And so um, we wanted, it's kind of a, it is kind of a progression from the Pew Commission report uh, where we uh, found significant environmental and health uh, concerns uh, based on the industrial animal model to us commenting on the dietary guidelines and then this process where uh, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Commission made these strong recommendations and uh, Secretary Vilsack, uh, USDA Secretary Vilsack, just totally ignored the sustainability and less meat guidelines. And so that's why we thought, well, let's see how, what the public thinks about this. And as you said, 74 percent, um, and it was really across all, all party lines, um, okay. you know, wanted to include sustainability. Um, 79 percent of respondents said that they wanted the scientists making the decisions on the recommendations and not politicians, which I think should be a wake-up call to the members of Congress who yeah. really voted to damage the process going forward. And then one of the more interesting things, I think, for me, too, was that 52 percent of the people responding said they'd be less likely to reelect a politician that ignored sustainability in the dietary guidelines. I've not seen anything like that before. Right. Okay. So, so a lot to a lot to unpack here. Um, so, my first question, I think, um, kind of going to what you said about Americans wanting experts, not and not politicians, to set the dietary guidelines. You know, I read that and I thought, do do they? <laughs> Is that really what they want? Because I feel like you know, in in for instance, in this last round. Um, there was a lot of pushback against the experts from industry and politicians representing their constituents, and there were a lot of allegations that maybe there wasn't enough evidence, um, you know, to support some of these recommendations. And then, furthermore, I think that there was a, a lot of pushback when scientists, the scientists for the first time, kind of attempted to make policy suggestions that would directly employ or enable the recommendations. Um, so, I, so I, I guess my question to you is. I mean, do you think that this the survey was really representative, given what we what we just saw? Well, I think so because you have to separate out what uh, one thing. One reason why you do uh, polling is to find out in an anonymous, blinded way what people think about issues. So this is um, not necessarily a poll of of the meat industry or um, of politicians. Although we found that. Um, a significant uh, number of 
families who uh, said they made their living from farming, I think it was about 55%, wanted sustainability uh, to be included and wanted um, the scientists to make the decisions. So I, so I think there was a split, and I think uh, Secretary Vilsack was really supporting kind of the interest of the industry over the interest of the general public. Um, and this is not the first time. I mean, there was a lot of criticism that, you know, well, they, this really wasn't about nutrition, um, and so why were they talking about sustainability? Right. Uh, in previous years, the dietary guidelines have recommended not advertising sugar to children. Um, they've recommended um, exercise as part of a uh, diet regimen. So it's really, and, and frankly, there's a significant body of science that, that talks about the importance of sustainable production as a way to allow us to keep producing into the future. So, so, okay. Um, right. So there, so there is, it just kind of, that was sort of the, some of the pushback that we saw you're saying from like a select group, basically, that was more vocal. Right. Not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of the, like the American Meat Institute uh, pushed back and, and there are, there are species promotion groups like the National Pork Producers Council or the National Cattlemen's Beef Association but they're pushing back because they make a lot of money from the current system. And if they would just, like, open their minds a little bit, they'd make a lot of money from a more sustainable system as well. But so I think it was more it was challenging their business model. Right. And I want to talk about kind of what that more sustainable system would look like in a minute. But um, some of the other kind of questions I had about the findings um, in terms of, you know, one of your findings, nine out of 10 Americans um, want to make sure that the food is produced in a sustainable way. Um, for instance, they, they they ranked this as very high or, or somewhat high, a high, somewhat high priority. Do you feel like people like the general public right now is reflecting um, this sentiment with their by putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, by voting with their dollars. Well, yeah, I, I think to a certain degree that's that's right, and I think it'll be interesting. We'd like to do more research in in this area and other other food production areas to see what different demographic groups feel about it. But I do think that you're seeing an increase in spending in more sustainable production, and I and I actually think that a couple of the more traditional companies, uh, like the Purdue Chicken Company, for example, recently just bought Nyman Pork. Um, and Nyman Pork is rated one of the highest sustainable pork production systems, uh, probably the highest in the country for pork production. And Hormel Meats, which is a more traditional industrial meat um, uh, company, just bought Applegate Farm. Thanks, Spam. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they, yeah, they make spam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who didn't have an unfortunate spam sandwich growing <laughs> up? Uh, but, but so I think they saw consumers are going in this direction and willing to pay more. And so, uh, so Hormel bought Applegate, which is a has a sterling reputation for its production system. Um, they have the famous, I think you've probably heard, "Eat less but better meat." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think I do think you see it, and and um, the, it's still probably not uh, strong enough yet to force significant market change. But we're we're moving in that direction. Right. Well, and I think that I think you're right that you know the recent acquisition of these smaller sort of more darling. Um, 
sustainable, quote, sustainable brands um, is a, a definite indication for the future. But one of the things that I know that these uh, smaller brands kind of come up against is with the supply chain. You know, there's not enough. Um, I've heard from representatives at some of these companies that, you know, it's a constant struggle to raise, uh, um, you know, to, to meet the demands for sustainably raised meat because it simply takes longer or, you know, they're, 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 they don't want to do this, the shortcuts that you see in more industrial farming practices. Um, is this something that you have done any research on or do you think that this is a big supply chain issue uh, for the industry moving forward and can we? I'm just I'm throwing three questions at you all at once. Like, can, you know, can we support um, uh, a, a more sustainable practice for for meat at the rate that we're consuming? Well, th- those are very good questions. I I think that you're right. It is harder. Um, it does take more time. Um, it's a little more uh, work intensive. Uh, there's also um, a bit of a problem uh, in some areas of access to slaughter facilities, which is part of the supply chain question you're asking too that sustainable producers and or organic producers uh, for uh, different animal species or grass-fed beef really have to pay a premium at slaughter facilities they have to to protect their brand Mm -hmm. um, they have to pay for cleaning of the slaughter facility before and after the run of their animals uh, through the system and because they like you said they don't produce in uh, as large in numbers as the industrial system, it, that's all those things drive up the cost. Um, but I do think that um, I think that as you reintegrate animals into the crop rotation production part of it, I mean, part of the problem with the industrial system is you separate the animals out, like I said, and there are they're they're fed antibiotics because they're overcrowded and their waste becomes a disposal problem. When you reintegrate them back into the the uh, crop rotation system, moving them around to, to help fertilize the fields, um, you eliminate those externalized costs of, of uh, antibiotic resistance costs and environmental damage. To offset the difference. To offset the difference, right. Okay, great. All right, well, we're going to actually take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we're going to be right back. Thank you very much. Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association. The Nutritional Therapy Association, NTA, is a vocational nutrition school that develops, trains, and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners and nutritional therapy consultants to understand and reverse the tragic and unsuspected effects of the modern diet on their clients based on their bio-individual nutritional needs. There's no perfect diet for everyone. Their philosophy is that the myriad of health problems that plague modern society result from weakness in the body's physiological foundations as a result of poor nutrition and that everyone deserves to be healthy. Throughout NTA seminars, students access a wide range of educational tools and techniques that help identify and correct nutritional imbalances from a holistic perspective, emphasizing the importance of properly prepared, nutrient-dense whole foods. Their organization was founded on the teachings of Weston A. Price and the science of Dr. Francis M. Pottinger. 
For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future. Um, okay, so so we were talking um, before the break about the survey that uh, your program recently, commi- your um, organization recently commissioned, and and its findings. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, if there is um, something that you saw in the results, given all of your experience in the pu- in the public health field and agriculture field, that you found to be incredibly surprising, that you were just really not expecting. Uh, well, that's a very good question. I think our the seventy four seventy four percent figure about including sustainability was kind of what I anticipated um, because other polls over the last year had shown similar results. I think a couple of things that that really surprised me um, was the ninety two percent figure um, that people want food produced sustainably, and the fact that it was very high across, you know, Democrat, Independent, and Republican breakouts. There was not a significant uh, difference uh, in that regard. And so that was a bit of a surprise to me that it is not really a partisan issue, that it's really uh, it's something that, that people of all political persuasions want. Do you think it's, it's being billed as a partisan issue, though, or misconstrued well, as a partisan issue? Well, I... I don't know. I mean, um, not so much. I, the, the stunning thing for me is how much food issues are ignored, just generally politically. Right. I mean, yeah. you don't yes. you, you don't hear any of the presidential candidates talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. If it's um, although I think there is some kind of feeling that maybe you know sustainability issues tend to be more of a democratic. Um, position and not so much concern of Republicans. Right, right. Um, okay, so let's say in like a like a, a more perfect world that environmental impact was something that was included in the dietary guidelines. What would that look like in practice? Like, would there be labels or you know a nutrition facts panel or some other kind of um, I don't know like assessment um, that would be required? What, what do you think? Well, that, yeah, how, how would that play out? Well, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I think that um, the main benefit, if they'd been, uh, if that language had been included in the dietary guidelines, would be how it would influence uh, purchasing of individuals and um, how it might encourage companies to move to more sustainable production. It also kind of informs the government purchasing uh, process that. Um, and I, I would have to say President Obama's done a pretty good job of trying to move uh, government contract purchasing more in the direction of more sustainable livestock and, and vegetable production. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, boy, it'd be great if there were some type of rating and assessment that that could easily inform people about that who are concerned about sustainability that, yes, this is sustainable and, you know, this rate's a 10 and this rate's a 6, so mm-hmm. people could make the choices. I don't know. That would take a lot of, um, a lot of work, I think. And, um, like a third-party verification system? Yeah, yeah, that would be important, a third-party verification system. Um, I think now uh, a lot of consumers rely on um, their uh, retail grocery stores, um, those who can afford Whole Foods, 
you know, go there because they understand their sustainability um, guidelines and and feel like uh, meat uh, is purchased appropriately and, you know, to a certain degree, Harris Teeter. You even have kind of the larger chains like Safeway um, a couple of years ago started um, marketing a rancher select huh. of of beef that they said it's, it meets these production criteria, and you know they were they were pretty uh, pretty sound. But again, it's you know I, I think one thing is it can't be I hate to say this, but you can't make consumers work too hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, they, they just don't have the time. Yeah, and I think that labeling. I mean, there are. There, uh, there, I feel like there's not a, a lot of standardization in the labeling process, at least here in the States. And, and there are so many different labels that mean so many different things. And the reality is a lot of them aren't really regulated at the federal level. Um, so some of them can just mean yeah. whatever, you know, the marketers want them to mean. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that is an excellent point. Um, Consumers Union does a lot of research like that on labels and, and how meaningless they are and yeah. or how meaningless they can be. and. I mean, even expiration date labels are yeah. are open to wide interpretation. So, mm-hmm. it w- it would take the development of a of a pretty uh, rigorous system, and like you said, third party uh, verification would be important. And it's interesting. I mean, Whole Foods just kind of came under fire in the past few months for their animal welfare rating system, sort of not being all that it's um, you know supposed to be i guess uh there you know had some some issues with that so even if we do do have a standard in place um sometimes it can be hard at you know to follow at various aspects along the supply chain but yeah a lot of a lot of times it takes a group like um so there's a really good group that um certifies if you meet their production criteria you'll get a certified animal welfare approved Mm -hmm. and and it's so they, and they keep after their producers. They make sure that there's no violations. They audit their producers. So there's none of that kind of slippage like you were just referring to um, at Whole Foods. Right. Uh, I mean, just it, you have to always be vigilant, I guess. Yeah. But what about, you know, you know, buying organic? So if we were going to, you know, try and give some advice to consumers, I mean, isn't that a, a technically a sustainable way um, that, that someone can support good purchasing practices? Yeah, I think for the most part, the organic standards um, are very, uh, very strong, and you there's no slippage there because that is a kind of an official designation. You can't label organic unless you meet those criteria. So I think that's uh, you know that's a really important label. Um, there's a new label that is USDA approved for school districts that want to purchase. Um, uh, chicken raised without routine antibiotics, and it's it's called no routine antibiotics label. So, but that doesn't get to the whole sustainability question. So, there are things out there. I think organic, although organic production is getting pretty big as well. Um, I think they have a pretty still a pretty robust brand. Right. Um, are there any other mechanisms uh, that you would point to if, you know, for, for somebody wanting to make a significant impact on the sustainability of the American food system? And if so, like, what what would this be and, and what would it take to make it happen? Well, I think that um, there's an easy thing um, 
consumers can do to kind of reduce their envi- environmental f- footprint as it relates to meat. And there's a national campaign based in New York called Meatless Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, the Center for a Livable Future is a science advisor to Meatless Monday. And it's basically pretty simple. If you want to cut your saturated fat by 20%, you just cut out meat one day a week. Um, and they say Meatless Monday because it's alliterative and it's... Yeah. Has, has ties back into really the First World War where people were asked to give up meat uh, so troops could eat. Um, huh. As far as sustainability, I mean, I really, it's, there's no one easy thing they can do. It's, I think, just a lot of diligence on the part of consumers to investigate companies and, um, you know, their meat production practices or, um, you know, Organic Valley, for example, has a pretty good uh, labeling system for their milk and cheese products. Um, you know, brands like Applegate Farm um, have good reputations. Um, so it's, there's no one really easy, quick way on sustainability. Right. But in general, a consumer can eat less meat, evaluate the brands more rigorously, and support those companies that are making more informed choices. Yes, that's very well said. <laughs> I just, well, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, <laughs> maybe you said it more concisely than I did. <laughs> All right. Well, what's, before we, we're going to have to unfortunately wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to know what is on the horizon for the Food um, System Policy Program. Are there any particular partnerships you're interested in, in, in exploring moving forward, or what's on tap? Well, we're hoping to continue this polling effort. I think what we'd like to do next is uh, try to have a better understanding of people's baseline understanding of the uh, animal production system and try to learn what information they need, whether it's, um, you know, the environmental impact or the health impacts of meat production and consumption, to change their their buying patterns uh, on meat. Um, we do have... Um, a new um, paper out, a uh, white paper that uh, if uh, it's called Instituting Change, it's available on the CLF website. Uh, and so that's geared to um, institutional food services or people that want to change their institutional food service to be a, a more sustainable model, the types of things they need to consider. So for example, Aramark and Sodexo and Compass are, are the three major institutional food services, and a lot of uh, hospitals or universities, or in some cases, um, you know, communities. Um, I've talked some to the, the health department in New York City about guidelines they want to promulgate mm-hmm. on uh, on sustainable meat uh, purchases. So we've got a new paper out called Instituting Change that talks about the barriers to to uh, securing a more sustainable food service. Um, there is nothing that Kim and I love talking about more than um, institutional food purchasing. So I think um, <laughs> we're definitely going to have to have you back to talk about that paper in the near future. <laughs> We've uh... yeah, uh, yeah. We've got uh, it's just it just came out about three weeks ago, and uh, we'd be happy to come back and talk okay. about it. Um, as a matter of fact, I'd be happy to have uh, I it, it was developed under my direction, but uh, I'd be happy to have the direct uh, one of the direct co-authors. Uh, 
on the program. All right. Well, here we go. I'm I'm uh, hosting a show. We're, we're producing future shows in action. You're seeing it all happen right now. <laughs> we're listening to it. <laughs> that is perfect. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Bob, and I really look forward to having you and your colleagues on again. Thank you for asking me. It's always a pleasure to be on Heritage Radio. <laughs> thank you. Love having you. Thank you. All right. Our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Brynarski. Show music is by Tim Archer. I want to thank our sponsors and our show engineer, David Tedashore. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.